Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at You guys may be seated. My name is Dwayne. I'm one of the pastors here at the District Church, and so just want to welcome you to our church. Um, we love to open our lives up to one another to love each other and also open up our Bibles to learn from each other. And so I want you to go ahead and grab your Bible. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 18 today. Um, our church does what we call expository preaching, which means that we preach through books of the Bible. We go verse by verse through that because we believe the Word of God instructs us. We believe the Word of God is authoritative and transforming our lives. It's what the Spirit of God uses to um, to teach us and to guide us and to direct us to become more like Jesus. And so uh, we, we value his word, we love his word, and therefore we want to open it and read it and preach from it as often as possible. And so not only do we do that from Sunday mornings, but we also have classes throughout um, the week. For example, starting in September on Thursday nights, we'll be offering an institute class um, to teach on the attributes of God. We want people to know God um, and to know the characteristics of God via his attributes. And so we want to invite you to that as well. Um, just as I said, we open up our lives to love. And so we have community groups that meet um, on Tuesdays, two groups on Tuesdays, one group on Wednesday. And those groups are, again, smaller groups of uh, 10 to 15 people who, again, orient their lives around the Word of God, how it instructs us, how it leads us to know one another and be known by each other as we continue to fall in love with Jesus and, and get to know Him more as well. And so um, that's just kind of a bit about us. Um, but as I said, because we are an expositional church, we preach through books of the Bible. Uh, we are in an overarching series right now in the book of Acts, um, Acts 18, as we are, we'll be looking at today. We've been in Acts since February 2018, um, so we, we take it seriously as we're walking through this, and we want to make sure that we don't miss anything um, that the Lord would instruct us and guide us in to be able to see and to know. And so today, we land in a city uh, called Corinth. Um, and we'll be kind of looking through these first 11 verses um, in this city uh, based on kind of the accounts that were told from uh, Dr. Luke as he's writing this book. Uh, the accounts from him on what happened when Paul landed in the city of Corinth. This is um, in his second missionary journey. And he's actually coming to the end of his second missionary journey as we'll see him in Corinth and then move on to Ephesus. And after he leaves Ephesus, he goes back to Jerusalem and will actually spend five chapters um, of him going through what we're just kind of calling the Jerusalem trials. Um, and then from there, he'll be sent back out on his third missionary journey. And that's where we'll wrap up the book of Acts, looking at his third missionary journey, uh, Lord willing, this fall. So... Acts chapter 18, uh, what we're going to be doing today with this is I'm going to read uh, through this passage, and as I read through this passage, I'm going to pull off from it and just kind of give some context and background based on what's going on in Corinth, what's happening with the Apostle Paul, what's happening with other people that he's engaging with while he's there and seeing the gospel change, transform lives, but then also seeing kind of this overarching message um, that's not only just contextualized to 
uh, what's going on in Corinth, but is also uh, very prescriptive for us. And so I, I kind of mentioned last week that as we read through Acts, there's a lot of things that are descriptive. It's just kind of describing what's going on in this culture, in this context. And then sometimes there are also prescriptive things that regardless of what your context is or what your city is, God is giving us commands through his scripture to be able to follow in and live out in our daily lives. And so I'm going to be providing a couple of those to us today, kind of in the closing of this sermon. But we want to first be able to look at just the context of what's going on in Corinth here. And so we're going to jump into verse 1. And before we do, I want to pray uh, before we jump into the word of God here. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the word of God that you have breathed out and that you have inspired to these men who wrote it some 2,500 years ago. We thank you for them. We thank you that they were faithful to do this, and we thank you that we have the opportunity and freedom today to be able to open up your word and to be able to be instructed through the guidance of your Holy Spirit to know your truth, to know the truth that points to Jesus Christ to who he is, what he stands for, and what he is doing in our lives today. As he is changing us to be more and more like him, as well as uh, commissioning us to do the very things that Jesus did when it comes to spreading the good news to those around us in our community and in our context. So we thank you, God. We ask that the Spirit right now pierces our hearts and our minds um, to the point that it convicts us with a holy conviction to potentially sacrifice things within our lives, to be able to um, throw off things within our lives that entangle us, to be able to get rid of things within our lives that are distracting us away from the mission of God, to glorify you by making disciples, by sharing the love of Jesus with those around us. So we thank you, Lord, as we open up your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 1. Uh, Acts chapter 18, picking it up in verse 1, throwing a curveball to you there. All right, here we go. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. All right, we're going to pause there. Um, so I want to give you a little bit of context for Corinth. Yes, I've got all kinds of hands waving at me. Red Chevy Cruise. Is anyone driving a Red Chevy Cruise? You, all right, we have a winner. So we share, I'm sorry, we have, we've already moved a couple of people, so I apologize. So we, we share a parking lot with the brewery, and, and the brewery's got the rights at 11 o'clock to that first row. Um, so if you could just move, that'd be amazing. I... <laughs> that is awesome. I want to talk to you after the service. <laughs> so good. Um, all right. <laughs> yes, verse 1, <laughs> Corinth. Uh, when you think of, of cities kind of within this context, I, I, I wonder, and, and I'm, al well, I'm allowing some feedback here on this one, um, I'm, I wonder what you picture in your mind, like when you hear Corinth or Athens, like what do you picture as a city kind of in this first century? What comes to mind when you think about these, these cities? What do you picture? What do you visualize? Columns, all right, columns. Anyone else? <laughs> Open sewage, sandals, all right. 
How big do you picture them? Like, I don't know if it's just me. Like, when I think back, and I don't know because I've spent so much time looking at, like, pictures of the ruins of these cities, but, like, a lot of times I picture them, like, relatively the same size as, as like, a neighborhood that I live in. Um, like, I don't picture them as, like, grand. And so I, I want us to be able to see, just kind of visualize here, um, the size of Corinth. And this isn't even one of the larger cities that's within the Roman Empire. This is one of the smaller ones, but it's a prominent city that's within this context. But in 400 BC, Corinth had a population of, of 90,000 people. 90,000 in 400 BC. It was then destroyed um, around uh, 149 to 150 BC. And then Julius Caesar rebuilt it in about 49 to 44 BC. And then by AD 54, which is about the time that Paul lands in Corinth, um, it has upwards of 750,000 people within its population. So, like, these are not small cities that, that Paul's engaging in. Like, when it says that he's coming and reasoning with people, it's not just, like, 25, 50 people he's kind of getting around in a circle. And hopefully, you know, if, if 12 of them come to know the Lord, then, like, half the cities come to know. The, like, it's, these are a lot of people that we're dealing with. And with that comes also a lot of problems that we're going to see within this city in context as we kind of talk about Corinth. But Corinth was a wonderful commercial center and also was kind of the sports center of the ancient world within this day and age. They had boxing, foot races, discus throwing, and many other games were indulged in by hundreds and viewed by thousands of people within this. If you were to pull up kind of an old ancient world picture, you're going to see that the theater within Corinth is like the prominence of there. There's other temples to Apollo and other places, but like the theater where they would come for their own entertainment, um, where, where they would also um, kind of indulge themselves within gambling when it comes to sports. Um, like the gambling sports apps now is not something new. Like this has been going on for thousands of years. They, they love their entertainment, but at the same time, they were also a very prominent port city. And so from uh, the west, they would bring ships in from Italy and from the east. They would have oriental ships that were coming in. And so they also had a lot of what we call syncretism of other religions coming into this city, other cultures coming into the city and kind of mixing and mingling with the people. And so one of the things that happened in Corinth um, was essentially they became one of the most vilest cities within the Roman Empire. Um, there were literally, people would say that to live as the, Corinth, as the Corinthians was to basically mean that you are like the lowest of the low when it comes to cultural norms, when it comes to reputation. Um, like that was a derogatory term to say you live as the Corinthians. There's even some other uh, terms for Corinthian as far as referring to a person that I can't say because we have children in this room. Um, but just go along the lines of prostitution uh, is kind of how these people were considered um, as far as a lifestyle that they would live. They were very corrupt. Um, people would even say in that, in that culture that Sodom and Gomorrah did not compare to Corinth. Um, so if you know anything about church history um, or you grew up in Sunday school, you know like Sodom and Gomorrah, like they're the ones that God just destroyed and wiped off. He's like, let's just redo this whole thing. Like he got rid of them. And so they were the vilest of the vile. It says B.H. Uh, Carroll, a uh, commentarian, said, wrote of Corinth, their religion was too vile to discuss publicly. 
No decent tongue could describe what occurred under the name of religion. So it wasn't even like they were kind of had like the religious good people and then like all the sinners, as we would say. Like it, to them, it was all intermingled within one another. Their religion was vile, their culture was vile, everything about them was vile. <laughs> and I love what R.C. Sproul once said of Corinth. He said, It would make Vegas look like a holy and righteous sanctuary. Um, is kind of us contextualizing it in our own modern culture here. And so it was very interesting to see. I wanted to point that out um, because when we see Paul land into this city, um, the opposition that he receives kind of allows us to be able to see why he gets so afraid for his life within this. Because when we think about the Apostle Paul, we think about a guy who is very confident and fearless in some ways when it comes to the preaching and proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. But yet here we see something happen with him in a moment. But we also see another couple um, that we're going to talk about that uh, the gig that they did have and then them landing in Corinth, you would kind of look at this and be like, man, like God must have really had it out for them and gave them the short and the stick for them to land in Corinth. And so I wanted to give you a little bit of context to see God's sovereignty in bringing people to this vile city and then what God does. And from there, I'll provide some prescription for us. So let's pick it up in verse 2. And he found a Jew, this is Paul, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So we meet Paul as he is meeting uh, Priscilla, and I use that because they also refer to her as Prisca. You've probably heard people say Priscilla a lot of times. I kind of even heard some whispering it here a second ago. Um, I'm not just making that up as if it's my enunciation of it. I'm from the South, so if you're new, this is normal. Um, but anyways, uh, we meet this husband and wife who have literally been displaced from Rome. And so they had a business in Rome. They were uh, tent makers, which also meant that they dealt with leather in this day and age. Um, and, and, and because Rome at this point is the leading city within the Roman Empire, probably with not much conjecture to say they have a very successful business in Rome. But because they were Jews, and this isn't the first time Jews have been displaced from Rome. This has happened several times before this. Uh, but Jews would essentially in Rome just continue to create a bunch of riots. And as they continue creating a bunch of riots, whoever the, the Caesar was at that time would literally just get rid of them. All right, We're just going to displace them, move them out. And so in droves, literally at 20,000 at different times, they would just push Jews out of Rome and displace them. And so here we find Achilla and Prisca, or Priscilla, uh, leaving Rome. And as they're leaving Rome, they land in Corinth. And so this is like, I mean, I don't even know if we have like a modern... Um, uh, variation of, of using this description, like maybe leaving New York and landing in Vegas. Like, I, I don't know, but like it's leaving the best of the best to go to the worst of the worst, essentially, is what's happening. And so you could look at this and be like, man, they are really getting the short end of the stick here. Um, like they are literally getting displaced, moved away from family and friends, a, a very successful business, and then having to land in Corinth of all places to try to essentially restart over their lives. 
And then Paul meets them and Paul engages with them in tent making because that was also his trade. And so one of the things we know about Paul is that whenever he would go into a city and plant a church, oftentimes he would not, even though he had this right, he would not request resources from either the local believers or other believers from other cities to essentially fund him to go plant the gospel within a city. He would just take it up on his own initiative to be able to do that. Now, he didn't do that in every city. There were other times where he did request funds in order to be essentially a full-time planter. Um, but here, this is one of the ones where he engaged in tent making in order to create resources for him to plant the gospel. So he's reasoning in the synagogues. Uh, literally every Sabbath, which for us would be every Saturday. He's going into their worship services, and he's just trying to tell them, don't miss Jesus, don't miss Jesus. Everything you're reading, everything you're singing, everything you're praying from the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. He's arrived, don't miss him. Don't continue looking for another Messiah. He's already here. This is the Jesus who I want you to um, know and trust and put faith in and believe in for the removal of your sins. And so this is what Paul is doing, and he's waiting for uh, Silas and Timothy to get to Corinth. So then, as they come with resources, he actually then devotes himself fully to the, the Word of God. And so I want to come back to Aquila and Priscilla here in a minute, um, but I want to move on with verse 5 and look at something here. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied. And occupied actually is not a good translation for um, that phrase within the Greek. The actual phrase there is began devoting himself completely. Occupied just kind of sounds like I'm just kind of taking some time. I'm occupied or preoccupied doing this thing. No, he was completely and wholly devoted at this point to the word of God. So he's essentially no longer tent making. He's day to day preaching the word of God and making disciples. So he's occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So this is really interesting um, because this is language that we've seen elsewhere in Scripture, kind of this idea of washing of your hands or shaking the dust off or even tearing your garments whenever something bad happens or you get really frustrated. And again, I want to point this out because we don't, this isn't, typical to Paul's character or typical to Paul's kind of reaction when he comes into a city. Like there's been times where we've seen him in Philippi where he is beaten and he's tortured for proclaiming the gospel and they end up imprisoning him and like you can't mess with him. He's in, the, he's in there in prison singing hymns, preaching the gospel, sharing it with the jailer and the jailer comes to know Christ. And so like seeing this kind of reaction from Paul has to show us the, the level of frustration, the level of uh, opposition and reviling that was coming against him to the point that he's so frustrated, he literally says, you know what, fine, your eternal death is on your own hands. I'm literally washing my hands of this. I'm shaking off my garments. And what he means by that is usually if you were to come into a city and you had a terrible experience within that city. When you left, you wanted to shake off all of the dust off your sandals, off your feet, off your garments, because you don't want any trace on you that you were a part of that city or within that city. 
Um, this was a custom of the Jews whenever they would pass through Samaria and they didn't want to deal with the Samaritans. They would shake off all the dust so that it was not seen as if they were actually a part of or within that culture or context. And so this is what Paul is doing here is essentially saying, um, I, I don't want anyone to know that I was here. So I'm going to shake off everything in order to be able to move on now and get to the Gentiles. Again, he's reasoning with Jews. He's reasoning with his own people and gets this frustrated based on the opposition that, that was given to him. From there, um, we move on to verse 7. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, his house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. There's only one other city that we know Paul stayed in um, longer than this one, and that was three years. Here he's staying 18 months at least within this city that he just got done kind of ranting, having a tantrum about the fact that he can't wait to get out of there and wants nothing to do with them. And yet you have the Lord come to him in a vision at night, and literally just shares with him, Paul, right now, I do not want you to be afraid. Which kind of leans us in a little bit more to what's going on with Paul when he gets frustrated. And when he literally tries to shake off all of his garments to say that he's never been there. There has to be some type of, of anxiety or fear that's going on within the life of Paul right now. Maybe with what happened in Athens and, and maybe him going on the Areopagus and... And, and just kind of preaching his heart out and maybe not seeing as many converts there as he would have liked. Maybe he's frustrated. A lot of times people talk about kind of the, the loneliness of people in ministry and how they kind of go on from one place to the next. And, and maybe here, like he doesn't have a lot of friends, doesn't have a lot going on. This is all conjecture. But at the end of the day, there is some type of level of fear and anxiety that Paul has experienced in order for God to come to him and say, do not be afraid. He's providing him assurance. He's providing him comfort in this situation in which Paul literally is fearful of his life. And at the end of the day, like it's, it's again unique because this is the same guy who's shipwrecked three times. Once he finally gets to land, gets bitten by a snake. He's been tortured countless times. He's received the 40 lashes minus one from the Romans. Like he's, he's literally had just about everything that can go wrong to a minister in this day and age happen to him. He's been stoned almost to death where they actually thought he was dead, drug him outside of the city and just left him for dead. Like, this is what's happened to Paul, yet he's in this city and he finds himself in this position where he's actually fearful for his life. And the Lord shows up in this moment in such a soft and tender way. Paul, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And then the next thing he says is a command to him. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Right now, you're literally saying, giving the posture um, that you're removing yourself, that you're no longer going to share the gospel with these people, that you're going to move on to the next city. 
but I have something different for you. I want you to continue sharing the gospel. I want you to continue speaking to the people. I do not want you to be silent about what's going on. And here's what I love about the Lord is he says, you have fear and anxiety about this. Don't worry. No one's going to attack you or harm you. So that must, again, been the fear is that my life is at stake. People are going to harm me. People are going to hurt me. No one's going to attack you. No one's going to harm you. For I have many people in this city who are my people. I have many in this city who are my people. Two things the Lord is doing here. Is one, he's comforting Paul, saying, I'm with you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm sovereign over everything. No one's going to harm you. No one's going to hurt you. Which is interesting. Because also in a lot of our texts, we don't get that promise. We don't get that assurance. As we literally have talked about over the last couple of weeks, is that a lot of sharing the gospel is actually going to come through suffering. It's going to come through affliction. It's going to come through a lot of opposition that's going to, that, that, that it's either going to verbally hurt or physically hurt. And here we have one instance where the Lord shows up and says, in the most vilest city, the one that's probably the most fearful for Paul to be in when it comes to preaching and proclaiming the gospel, the Lord shows up in a special, unique way in which he says, not only do I, I, I don't want you to be silent, but what I am going to silence is the affliction within this city, the opposition within this city. No one's going to attack you. No one's going to harm you. Talk about now kind of the encouragement boost that Paul's going to get to be able to then take the gospel to these people. And if that's not a charge enough, I love how he finishes this. I have a lot of people in this city that are going to come to know me. Therefore, go and preach the gospel to them. Do not be silent. Now, for a planter coming into a city, what kind of assurance is that? You're going to plant this gospel... And none of it's going to be in vain. I have a lot of people here that I want to come to know me through the preaching and proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. So don't be silent. Go and speak. They will be saved. I love that. All the Lord is doing in this text is providing to the Apostle Paul assurance and guarantees and comfort. And we need this. We each need this. The reason why we each need this is because Paul's not alone in this chapter. One of the ways that God provides this comfort and assurance is through the relationship with Aquila and Prisca, coming back to them. These are not full-time pastors, ministers. They are what in church world we refer to as lay people. So you have the vocational pastors, ministers, and then you have lay people, the congregation, the members of the church. That's who Aquila and Prisca are. And they are mentioned six times throughout the New Testament, not only here, but in, uh, in three other Pauline letters that were written to the churches where Paul is talking about his friends, Aquila and Prisca, who, who not only provided hospitality in Corinth, who also came alongside Paul and built tents, and sold them in order for him to be able to receive resources to plant the gospel within this city. But they opened up their home so that we see in other letters, greet Priscilla and, and, and Aquila in their house, also the church that resides there. So this is a couple who 
are successful in business. Not only are they here in Corinth, but they actually do land back in Rome at some point to where we see in the book of Romans, as Paul's writing to the Romans, is telling the Romans to go and greet Aquila and Prisca in their home where the church resides. So we see this family opening up their hearts, opening up their homes for the, for the advancement of the gospel. And these are not the full-time missionaries. These are not the full-time pastors. These are just successful business owners who we would consider lay people who have a prominent place when it comes to the advancement of the gospel within a city. I don't think the success within Corinth of the planting of the gospel would have happened if God didn't displace Aquila and Priscilla from Rome and bring them to Corinth in order to come alongside Paul when he is in a moment of weakness to help provide him some stability when it comes to finances as well as stability when it comes to friendships in a moment of weakness for him. In a place where he can kind of um, use their shoulders to cry on, use them as a crutch in seasons where he needed it, to be able to provide him this, this structure, to be able to plant the church. The church doesn't need more, let me try to figure out the best way to say this, just professional preachers or Seminary grads, like what the church needs more are faithful men and women who are working vocational jobs within the community, who are opening up their hearts and their homes to be able to see the gospel advance within a city. That's what the church needs more of. And that's what we want to see our men and women raised up within the church, within this light. And here's actually one of the most beautiful things is the next city that we get to is Ephesus. And we've seen as Paul spent this 18 months within Corinth, spending time preaching and sharing the gospel, not only with Aquila and Priscilla as they're growing in the gospel, but they are sent out as they are landing in Ephesus. As they're going there, they meet Apollos. And as Apollos is sharing the gospel in Ephesus... Before Paul gets there, he's sharing an incomplete gospel to the point where then Aquila and Priscilla pull him aside and say, hey, we need to teach and train you a little bit. I love that. I, I would love the day when we see new church planters come into the city of Indianapolis who want to come alongside the district church to plant another church within the city, and I just push them out to the faithful members of our church to train them to plant the gospel within a city. That's exactly what's going on in this story right now. And so for us, this is not just something that is descriptive, but is very prescriptive for us. First and foremost... Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid for the opposition that is within the city of Indianapolis. Do not be afraid of those who might revile us or think we're crazy or think we are narrow-minded or think that we have just completely lost it because we believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness and removal of our sins. The Bible promises that there are going to be people who oppose it. Because the gospel is bittersweet. It first says you are a sinner. No one receives that knowledge thinking first and foremost, thank you for telling me that. No, usually it's, 
How dare you call me out for my sin or for what you think that I do that is wrong? But the beauty is then on the backside of that, when we come to our own kind of realization of who we are as sinners because of the grace and mercy of Jesus, the bitter sweetness of it is then Jesus offering forgiveness when we start to actually see how vile we are as we live as the Corinthians live, as it would say. Do not be afraid. Have assurance and confidence that the Lord is with you. What, what did he promise us in the Great Commission in, in Matthew chapter 28? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Great, that's awesome. That is our command. That is what we are to go and do. But he finishes it with, don't worry, I will be with you every step of the way. Every word that you speak, every person that you engage, every time you open up the doors to your home and you invite people in around your dinner table and you, you invite yourself into their lives to get to know them and be known by them, I'm there with you. I'm in every Bible study. I'm in every prayer. I'm in every song that is sung. I'm in every uh, sermon that is preached. I'm in every gathering. I will always be with you. You can have that assurance that the Lord is among us. That he's residing in us. And that he has a people within Indianapolis that he's going to redeem through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have that assurance. That should build within us a confidence and a desire to not be silent. I love what Jeremiah chapter 20 verse 9 says. This is my prayer for us. Jeremiah says, If I say I will not mention him, or speak any more in his name. I will find in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary without, I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot hold it in. I want the gospel to be so alive within our hearts and our minds that, and what I mean by the gospel being alive within our hearts and our minds is that we so treasure and adore and worship Jesus Christ, that it aches within our bones, that it burns within our hearts, that it constantly resonates within our minds, that we cannot but help ourselves to share the gospel with every person that we come in contact with. Whether it's our neighbors next door that we've known for two years, or whether it's the first new coworker that comes on board within our company, or whether it's the person at the cashier, like whoever it is that the Lord is placing in front of you, we would not refrain from sharing the gospel with them or engaging in conversation with them because it's burning within us. And we can like we will grow weary if we don't let it get out of us. That is my prayer for us. And if you're kind of thinking right now, yeah, but like I've lived next to this person for three years and I've never shared the gospel with them. Like how silly is it going to look for me now to share the gospel with them? Here's how easy it is. Go to them and say, hey, I need to apologize. 
there's something that's really important in my life that I've just never shared with you. I'd love to share it with you if that's okay. I want to show you why I love Jesus, why I treasure Jesus, what he's done for me. Is that okay? If I, I want to share that with you. I apologize again for not doing it up to this point. But it's really important to me. And I think it would be really important to you as well. Can I share it with you? And share them the gospel. If you don't know what the gospel is, come to community groups because over the next eight weeks, we're literally unpacking what the gospel is. What the overall story narrative of the Bible when it comes to creation, to fall, to redemption, and ultimately restoration, how Jesus is the good news for all of those things. That's what we're unpacking because we want our people to be so ingrained in this message and story that as we see in Scripture these stories of Paul coming into a city who's the worst of the worst and as he gets frustrated because they oppose him and as the Lord intervenes within that situation and says, don't be afraid. I'm going to provide you some people support. I'm going to bring some new friends to you. They're going to be able to encourage you. They're going to provide some hospitality for you. They're going to help you out with this. Not only that, but I don't want you to be afraid because I'm with you always. And not only am I with you, but I'm giving you the assurance that when you preach and proclaim the gospel, people will get saved. Now go along, child. <laughs> go do the work. That's the assurance that we can have. And that's the assurance that I pray we get to have. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for what you are doing. God, in our city, it is simple. There are people who know you as Savior, and there are people who don't know you at all. And what we are praying for as a new church within this city of Indianapolis, we are praying that you would provide us the comfort that we need to not be afraid to not be silent, but to be bold with the proclamation of the gospel. To be able to share the gospel with those whom we've known for several years or those whom we've just met. Because if we're in this room and we truly believe that Jesus Christ is our greatest treasure, then we would be foolish to let the people around us continue placing hope in lesser treasures, false treasures, things that will not provide them hope and satisfaction, things that ultimately will not provide them forgiveness of sins. So God, we want, we want, we pray desperately to engage our community with the gospel of Jesus. So will you continue building that within our hearts and our minds? Encourage us now as you encouraged Paul in Corinth. Provide us the, the structure and stability as you did with Aquila and Priscilla. 
Provide us the assurance that there are people in this city who don't know you now, but will as we share the gospel with them. And just continue to give us more and more of Jesus every single day. Because it's all about him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at